You're listening to Detroit Today. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Laura Weber-Davis. And I'm Jake Neer. We're sitting in for Stephen Henderson today, who is sitting in for 1A, a program that you can hear, a national program you can hear on WDET from 8 to 10 p.m. tonight. So please, hear Stephen hosting a national program. We're so excited to hear what he has to say. Lead that conversation. 8 to 10 p.m. tonight on WDET. White supremacist groups say that they're intent on holding more rallies and protests around the country. That's after a rally in Charlottesville turned violent, resulting in many injuries and one woman's death. Some universities say they won't allow white nationalists and supremacists to rally on or near their campuses due to concerns over safety and security. That includes Michigan State University, which recently denied white nationalist ringleader Richard Spencer's request to a rally. Spencer claims that that was a violation of his First Amendment rights. And we've been hearing a lot from these hate groups in recent months about a perceived violation of their right to free speech. What is free speech and how is it protected under the First Amendment? What isn't protected? Is it important that these groups are able to demonstrate as long as they don't turn violent? We want to hear from you this hour. We're going to talk about freedom of speech in the First Amendment all hour. 313 577-1019. Again, that's 313-577-1019. The person I wanted to be in the program today is Richard Primus. He's our first, first guest. He's a constitutional law expert and professor at the University of Michigan Law School. Richard, thank you for joining the program. Happy to be here. The reason I really wanted to start the show with you is because you have, for me, been able to frame what the framers intended uh, with with these amendments and with the Constitution uh, more broadly. So let's just begin with the history of it. Why did the, the why did the founders go back to the Constitution after a few years and say, you know what, we're going to need a few amendments to this thing? So the framers went back to the Constitution largely as a matter of political reassurance. The initial Constitution as adopted did not have the amendments that we know of as the Bill of Rights. The Constitution was popular enough to be adopted. The major project of the Constitution had been to create a stronger central government. Uh, A lot of the times we moderns think of the Constitution as a device for limiting the government. But at the Constitutional Convention, the project was actually to create a bigger, stronger central government, not to limit one. And then once they created the bigger, stronger central government, they decided a couple of years later that to make sure that they had not done too much, they needed safety features. And that meant the amendments that we know of as the Bill of Rights, including the free speech guarantee. But the free speech guarantee that they wrote and that we know as the First Amendment was something that they thought of in much narrower terms than we do. Hmm. For one thing, if you read the First Amendment, it says... Congress shall make no law, mm-hmm. and then lists the topics about which Congress shall make no law, religion and speech most notably. That meant that for them, it wasn't the job of the First Amendment to deal with speech restrictions by state governments. And in fact, um, until the 20th century, if the state of Michigan wanted to censor your speech, it could do so without violating the Constitution. Right, that's interesting. Right. So the idea that we have free speech rights as individuals against any government and over a broad range of free speech topics is a much broader conception of free speech than the founders had. But it is a very important idea that's been part of our constitutional law through decisions of the courts for close to a century now, Hmm. because we have recognized 
that a democracy requires wide open room for free speech, for dissenting speech, for speech from lots of different points of view. And those ideas which have been critical to American constitutional law for about 100 years are, should be thought of as the ways in which we have continued to build on and expand the original, more limited, but still important ideas about free speech that the founders gave us. So, Richard, why why then did we get to this place where it, it, it covers so much of what we consider to... Uh, I don't know, employ our personhood. It's almost like it's almost like this ability to say whatever we want, wherever we want it is is in, ingrained in who we are as Americans and not just as Michiganders for say. Um, it's not it's not viewed on this state by state basis. It is viewed on who we are as a people of this country. Why did we get to that place where it's become so central to what we hold dear? So the biggest central reason, is that a lot of times we tend to define ourselves in terms of our biggest fears or threats or problems, right? Think of it this way. The Constitution itself was a response to the biggest problem that Americans faced in the 1780s, which was their government was too weak. And when you have a government that's too weak, what you do is you create a stronger government. That's what the Constitution did. And that is the solution broadly to your most important problem. In the 20th century, in the middle of the 20th century, the most important threats and problems facing the United States as a nation were the problems of European totalitarianism, Nazi Germany in the Second World War and the Soviet Union through much of the 20th century. And we came to understand our values in large part in contrast to them, what are they, right? And what is it about us that makes us really different from them? And some of our most important answers were, well, we have free speech and free politics in ways that they do not. They insist on conformity of ideas. And we have commitments to equality in ways that they do not. They have overtly racist ideologies. And that did two things to American constitutional law and to American political identity. The first is it greatly strengthened our commitment to things like free speech. And the second is it greatly strengthened our commitments to things like equality. It's a big part, it's not the only reason why, but it's a big reason why racial equality begins to be taken really seriously in American constitutional law in the middle of the 20th century. Hmm. Right? The the 14th Amendment, which says that no state shall deny any person the equal protection of the laws, was written in the 1860s. But we had segregation until the 1950s and 1960s. Right. Because it's in the 1950s and 60s that we are reacting against the lesson of Nazi Germany. And we say, hey, we just can't tolerate this anymore. Hmm. Similarly, in the 20th century, reacting to European totalitarianism, we take much more seriously the ideas that had been kicking around American constitutional law about free speech. And at the end of the 20th century, we have a constitutional law whose most central commitments include free speech, especially about politics, and racial equality, because those are among the most important constitutional values that differentiated us from the people who were the greatest threats to us in the 20th century. Mm. 
Richard Primus, this is Jake Neer. Um, I'm, I'm hoping you can give us sort of a primer, a Primus primer, if you will. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> that of, was pretty of, bad, Jake. Yes, it was. Uh, of, you know, when, after all of this, I know that, that hate speech itself has been tested even in recent memory in the uh, Supreme Court of the United States. Where do we stand now after all the case law, after we've moved away from maybe where the framers were with the First Amendment to today? What is now protected free speech and what is not protected under the First Amendment? So there are a lot of hard questions here because nobody thinks and the founders didn't think and the courts have never thought that the freedom of speech means the freedom to say any words you want under any circumstances in any way at any time. Right. And all of us all of us know this intuitively. Right. I can't go stand under your window at four in the morning and start blasting my speech from loudspeakers. <laughs> I, um, uh, I can't go into a chemistry class at a local high school or at the University of Michigan and start giving a political protest. Right? Um, there are all sorts of ways in which we regulate the time and the place and the manner of speech for all sorts of perfectly good common sense reasons. What the government is not supposed to do is repress speech for the purpose of preventing the dissemination of an idea. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, the hate speech questions and the questions that are most relevant in things like the Charlottesville scenario are about the line between speech that is the conveying of an idea intended to be offered to persuade people and speech that is actually a set of actions designed not to persuade, but to intimidate. Intimidation, which often happens verbally, among other ways, is not actually part of the process of give and take and dissent and persuasion that the First Amendment wants to protect. It's a way of getting people to shut down their thinking about ideas rather than really to engage with them. And universities, like the University of Virginia, where the Charlottesville incident happened, are in a a special position in a situation like this. Because on the one hand, universities are paradigms of the kinds of places where speech needs to be open and free and robust. Like any sorts of ideas can be expressed because it's supposed to be a world for the exploration of ideas. Universities and legislatures are core sites of free speech in the American system. At the same time, the mission of the university requires that speech occur in ways that don't destroy the possibility of the kind of learning and inquiry that are required for the university to achieve its mission. So just as a legislature is a core spot for free speech, but that doesn't mean that anyone has a right to go into a session of the legislature and start shouting and shouting and shouting so that the representatives can't get their work done. Right. Mm-hmm. In the same way, no one has a right to come into a university and start speaking in ways that prevent the learning process. The Department of Education, the Federal Department of Education actually has rules that apply to American universities that require universities to make sure that the learning environment is one in which there isn't harassing speech that prevents students from pursuing the educational mission of the university. And that means, take an extreme example. If someone wanted to come onto a university campus and start telling the students, we are going to start blowing things up around here, 
right? Well, that would obviously not be speech consistent with what the university needs to protect, both because it's a right. threat of an illegal act and because it's designed to throw the students off their game and prevent them from being able to learn. There are some kinds of political protest that unnerve people and that people just have to put up with. Because part of free speech, part of the giving permission for dissent, is that sometimes you have to be confronted with ideas that make you uncomfortable. That's a large part of the mission of any kind of education, and certainly a large part of free politics. But if the purpose of an event where people speak is not to persuade you of an idea, but to scare you, right. that's inconsistent with the learning environment that the university right. is required, mm-hmm. in Can't fact, get much done. required yeah. to provide. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is Detroit Today. I'm Jake Neer with Laura Weber Davis. We're sitting in for Stephen Henderson today. We're talking all hour about the First Amendment and free speech, and we want to hear from you. What are your thoughts about what, how much leeway we should give these groups to protest, get their ideas out there, and demonstrate as long as it doesn't become violent as it did in Charlottesville? What is a... Uh, what is a lawful rally? What's an unlawful rally? And what would your reaction be if one of these groups wanted to hold a rally in your backyard, let's say in your community, if a hate group said, we want to demonstrate right where you live, what would your reaction be? The number is 313-577-1019. Again, that's 313-577-1019. You can also comment on our Facebook page or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. Right now, we're speaking with Richard Primus, constitutional law expert and professor at the University of Michigan Law School. And Richard, uh, in, in your answer, you were talking about sort of, you know, what what constitutes this line between uh, what is intimidation and what is just putting out ideas. If you have a political ideology, like many of these groups have, that involves things like genocide or creating an ethnostate or things that are sort of inherently uh, violent or intimidating to other groups, is there any room for your political ideology under the Constitution? Well, there has to be some room for it. That is to say, advocacy of the idea, description of the idea, right, can't itself be prohibited by the government under the First Amendment. If you have somebody with, you know, no matter how terrible an ideology, if what they want to do is write about why they think their ideology is a good idea and encourage people to read what they've written and maybe be persuaded, they have to be permitted to do that. Mm-hmm. And the response that you know, people should have and that society should have is not to be persuaded, right, and to argue back and to explain why these are terrible ideas that we should not adopt. But if advocacy at that level has to be permitted as a matter of free speech and free politics in our society, what doesn't have to be permitted is events that are intended to and that have the effect of not persuading people, not describing the idea, but creating the threat of violence or intimidating people rather than persuading them. And a big part of why this is uh, a particularly pressing in the age of Charlottesville is that the First Amendment now coexists with a different part of constitutional law that it didn't used to coexist with, in particular, the Second Amendment. The Second Amendment has been there for as long as the First Amendment. But for most of American history, the Second Amendment was not interpreted to confer on individuals a right to own and carry weapons. That's a 21st century 
development. And it means that people now have, the courts say, a right under the Second Amendment to own and carry certain kinds of firearms. So a lot of people are thinking, you know, if these groups have a First Amendment right to speak and people have a Second Amendment right to carry arms, then does that mean they have a constitutional right not just to speak, but to be armed, to parade, to, to conduct parades or events where they are heavily armed. To speak while holding and, a rifle. <laughs> yeah, Exactly. Yeah. Right. It, it, it's different to listen to a person talk about an idea and to listen to a group of people heavily armed talking about an idea that is threatening to you. <laughs> it's awfully intimidating. Here, right. And here is a, a very important thing to remember about this. Constitutional rights are not necessarily additive. That is to say... Under the Constitution, the fact that you have right A and right B doesn't always mean that you get to exercise both at the same time. Here are a couple of easy examples right, that should make the point. Under the Constitution, you have a right to a jury trial if you're accused of a crime. And under the Constitution, you have a right to carry a firearm, right, uh, to own and maybe to carry a firearm under the Second Amendment. That doesn't mean that a criminal defendant has the right to be armed at his own trial. Right? Right. Or... Under the Constitution um, and the rights of privacy, adults have the right to have sexual relationships with other consenting adults. And under the Constitution, people have a right to gather in public. But that doesn't mean that American adults have the right to have sex in public, either right. in couples or in assemblies. Right. right. Each constitutional right that you have is subject to a set of limitations about the conditions under which it is, it is appropriate to be exercised. Right. The same goes for the First and Second Amendments. People have Second Amendment rights, and people have First Amendment rights. But it doesn't follow that you can put the two of them together in ways that are actually destructive to the values of the First Amendment that are about a process of discussion and persuasion, rather than processes of intimidation. Richard Primus is our guest right now. He's a constitutional law expert with the University of Michigan. Richard, before we let you go, I want to run something by you. I've sort of been yelling into the void the past few days from my completely amateurish standpoint. Um, there's this sense, of course, I, I graduated from Michigan State, so I'll probably defend that university more than I ought to as, as a journalist. Um, but I, there's always this sense that I come across in, in, about, in my understanding of the, uh, of the First Amendment that... The First Amendment guarantees that you won't be arrested for saying something hateful, but it doesn't guarantee that you get to hold, get the permit to the rally, that a, a permit to a rally is not uh, protected under the First Amendment as much as your thoughts are, uh, your thoughts and what you want to say out loud are protected by the First Amendment. Where do those things intersect? And, and am, I, am I right in that sense? So I think that the basic idea is correct. That is to say, you can't be arrested for your thoughts, for the ideas that you have. That's certainly true. Or for the expression of ideas. It is also true that government generally has a right to control time, place, and manner of expression. Right. And that's why sometimes you have to get permits to have rallies and that sort of thing. What the government cannot do is pick and choose who gets the permit Hmm. on the basis of the content of the idea that is being expressed. And how do the universities... Right, so the, the government, Sorry. So, so the government can't say, we'll give a permit for Republicans, but not for Democrats. What the government can do 
is say, when we give permits, we don't give permits for groups that, whose events are going to risk violence. We don't care what idea you're expressing. If the event creates a significant risk of violence, we don't give a permit for that. And the government can also designate the spaces in which they will give permits and the spaces in which, uh, are, which are dedicated to other kinds of activities. Richard Primus, I want to thank you so much for kicking off this conversation today. I know I learned a lot already, and I hope that our listeners did as well. Thank you so much for joining us. Happy to be here. That's Richard Primus. He's a constitutional law expert with the University of Michigan. Now that we've sort of framed the conversation about what's allowed and what isn't under the First Amendment, we're going to continue with your phone calls right after the break. 313-577-1019. Again, that's 313-577-1019. We'll talk to a couple people who have written about free speech lately. And we want to remind you that Stephen Henderson will be back in a couple days because right now he's going to be hosting 1A out of Washington, D.C. Please listen to that tonight at 8 p.m. on WDET. This is Detroit Today. We'll be right back. News. Music. Culture. And community. Every day. Every day. Every day. On 1019 WDET. Detroit's public radio station. You're listening to Detroit Today. I'm Jake Neer, sitting here with Laura Weber Davis. We're sitting in for Stephen Henderson, who is hosting 1A Today from Washington, D.C. Uh, that is a, a NPR show out of WAMU. It's uh, going to be great. I'm so excited to hear what Stephen does out of that. You can hear that here on WDET tonight uh, from 8 to 9 p.m. Uh, we're talking all hour on Detroit Today about the First Amendment, First Amendment and free speech in the context of hate groups holding protests and rallies. Is their message just as worthy of protection as any other? Should groups like the ACLU fight in court for these groups' right to hold these rallies? And at what point do these demonstrations like the one in Charlottesville become unlawful? We want to hear from you. What would your reaction be? Let's say if one of these groups wanted to hold a rally in your hometown, do you support their right to nonviolent speech, even if you vehemently disagree with what they're saying? And... Should universities like Michigan State allow these groups on campus, or should they deny those requests like MSU did with Richard Spencer's group? The number to call is 313-577-1019. Again, that's 313-577-1019. You can also leave us a comment on Facebook or go to Twitter and use the hashtag Detroit Today. Uh, Tom in Northwest Detroit, Leo, Bob, Joanne, hold on to the lines. We'll get to you very soon. We have a lot of people wanting to chime in on this conversation. Uh, we are going to bring in two other voices into this conversation right now. First, uh, Sheikha Dalmia is a senior analyst for the Reason Foundation and a writer for Reason Magazine. Sheikha, thank you so much for joining Detroit today. Thanks for having me. And we also have on the phone Judy Putnam, a columnist with the Lansing State Journal. She's been writing about the situation at Michigan State lately. Judy, thanks so much for joining the show today. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great to hear your voice. Uh, Judy, I wanted to start with you. Could you please just kind of give us a uh, take on, on exactly what happened with MSU and Richard Spencer's group. What was the situation there, and what was the outcome of the, all that? 
Well, it kind of popped up surprisingly. MSU, um, you know, said that the National Policy Institute, which is Richard Spencer's group, and it, I call it kind of a sanitized name for a hate group. But um, he, on August 16th, they said he had asked to speak mid-September and, and on the campus, and the university was reviewing um, his request, and they were weighing the, you know, the freedom um, of expression versus safety. And then the next day, the president, Luana K. Simon, put out a statement saying they had decided in light of significant safety concerns and talking to law enforcement officials that they should deny the request. Yeah. And, and you, you wrote a, uh, well, one question that I wanted to ask is, there, there was there a, any student group involved in uh, bringing them to campus, or was this just a request uh, from Richard Spencer's group to come onto campus? As far as I know, it was just a request. We haven't heard of any student groups that right. um, were involved, and I think the initial statement said they were not. So there was no invitation or anything like that to come onto campus? No. Yeah, and, and, and Judy, you wrote a, a column about this. The, the headline is, MSU chooses safety over bravery with decision on white nationalists. Uh, tell me a little bit about what your, um, your take is on this when it comes to, it, it sounded like, uh, from at least the headline that you you think that they this would have been an act of bravery for MSU to say, hey, you know this maybe we don't agree with this group, but uh, they have you know uh, the, we we don't have a problem with them being here. Absolutely, I thought um, you know it's really easy to defend free speech when you agree with what people are saying, but when you disagree and it's a very unpopular point of view. To me, that's when we really test our principles around free speech. And that's what I wrote. I thought it would be a very brave um, statement to say yes. Uh, two other universities had said no. Um, there may be litigation involved. But it would be a really safe choice for the university with its uh, you know, donors and the parents to say, no, we're not letting them on. So I, I just think it was a very, very hard choice. And my opinion has not proved to be popular with the readers. <laughs> I do have, <laughs> I've been getting a I didn't anticipate how strongly people felt. I knew it wasn't a popular point of view because so many people want, um, you know, someone to stand up to these hate groups. Um, but when you step away and look at our First Amendment rights, I mean, these are precious freedoms. And a university is a good place to debate those. Mm. Let's go. Let's go briefly to the phones here. Leo is in St. Clair Shores. Uh, just one moment. Leo, welcome to the program. How are you? Leo. Good morning. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. What are your thoughts about uh, Michigan State rejecting the rally request? You know, I personally, I agree. I feel like that's the right thing to do because as opposed to your previous um Yes, now, I don't believe that you can actually have a rational debate with these kind of people. They, they are provocators, and they won't really engage in a rational uh, type of conversation. But then on the other hand, I also want to play devil's advocate, and I would like, you know, I'm just curious to know what would be the stance on universities if other type of radical groups hmm. would also... Uh, be wanting to, um, you know, speak or have um, a forum 
you know, people like communists or even radical Islam. Right. I'm curious to know what would be their position. But I personally agree. I feel like as a community, as a society, we shouldn't let these kind of uh, supremacist and hate groups, you know, take on an open forum and, you know, and given them that... Uh, legitimate space for them to speak up. Leo, thank you so much for the phone call. I really appreciate that. Sheikah, let's bring you in now. Sheikah Dalmia is from Reason Magazine. She is a libertarian, and I was surprised to learn that you, perhaps you were okay with Michigan State rejecting this request. Yeah. I, I well, thought that that would... Go we, ahead. We should also say for full disclosure that your husband is a professor at Michigan State. Oh, yes. yes. So maybe you didn't want it for that reason. <laughs> oh, no, 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 I'm not, no, I'm not saying that. <laughs> Uh, no, that has actually nothing to do with where I am on right. this issue. And, you know, I'm deeply, deeply conflicted about the whole thing. Uh, on one hand, I'm actually something of a First Amendment absolutist. I mean, I don't believe in content-based restrictions on uh, free speech, even hate speech. Um, I think it should be allowed. And uh, and the reason is, you know, I think the American model of free speech is correct, that uh, the, you know, antidote to hate speech is more speech. Um, you know, free speech is a great disinfectant to bad ideas. Uh, John Stuart Mill had sort of this whole idea of marketplace of ideas, you know, that the truth wins out when you allow a wide range of opinions to kind of duke it out in a free-for-all. And I completely, you know, agree with that. Um, in the Michigan State University case, it's uh, things are a little bit complicated. I mean, on one hand, as Richard Primus was saying, Michigan State University, it's a public university, and it has this mission of promoting the widest latitude of ideas. Right. Uh, and, you know, if uh, and on that count, you know, Richard Spencer, he is, I think, quite clearly part of a hate group. He should have been allowed. Two things give me pause. One, the fact that, you know, just because somebody has a free speech right doesn't mean that I am obligated to provide him with a platform to voice his ideas. You know, that is also part of my exercise of free speech when I don't want to allow certain people to express their ideas on my property. But Michigan State is a public university. And a public university is a, di is a different animal altogether. On the other hand, in this case, as uh, you know, Laura was pointing out, um, this was you know no student group had invited him, no faculty had invited him. He was basically asking the university president to rent space at Michigan State University in order to you know be an agent provocateur, mm. and I think that's slightly a different situation. So in this case, you know, I'm willing to kind of go along with Luana Simon and her decision. On the other hand, I think this is very dangerous territory to uh, tread on. Judy, what do you think about that? Is this dangerous territory as far as the rejection is concerned? Yeah, I, I think it is. And I was um, personally hoping, I, because I live near campus, mm -hmm. uh, I was, and, and my son was a student there, I can imagine the fear parents would have. But um, I think the fact um, that the president cited safety, she didn't come up with a, another reason like, we can reject them because our rules say um, no, a student group has to invite them. That that was not part of her reasoning. Uh, it was all on safety versus free expression. And I agree um, with everything. Is it, is it Chica just said? Yes, Chica, yep. Um, and it, I, the only 
people I really have a problem with in throwing in their opinion on this are people who say it was a no-brainer to reject them because hmm. there's a lot, there's, um, you know, as you're saying, a dangerous precedent being set. And that's the whole point of free speech. Which groups do we let in? Which groups that we don't? Don't. And the point is nobody decides that because we have free speech. Yep. And um, so the whole safety issue is a, a gray area, um, and I'm not a legal scholar, so I don't know what legal line it has to cross. But, I mean, there are limits on free speech, and inciting violence and the fighting words is one of the limits. But what? how do we predict that, that that's going to incite some violence? And I don't think we're have enough information on Charlottesville and what was in this uh, fellow's head who ran the car, um, you know, through the crowds and killed uh, the young woman. Um, it's just all so tragic. Uh, yeah, no, I actually completely agree with you, Judy. Um, you know, in th in this case, I, agree. I mean, it is completely possible that the whole uh, safety argument was something of a cop-out, right? Mm. And uh, it was, uh, I, you know, Richard Spencer has some history of promoting violence. Uh, I, you know, after, uh, after Trump got elected, he held this infamous rally in Washington, D.C., where they were, you know, not only was he using that words that came to close to fighting words, but they were actually, he was encouraging all the people who were attending to, you know, Hitler and, you know, right. the usually usual Nazi, uh, you know, mm -hmm. uh, imagery. Um, in this case, I actually really don't think he would have promoted violence. I mean, he, he's not a stupid man. And I don't think he would have done that because he would know if Michigan State, you know, if he came to Michigan State and did that, you know, pretty much he would be banned in Shut every other anyway. university. So he wouldn't have done that. So it is something of a cop out. My argument is slightly different over here. I am just saying if no group had invited him to speak, mm -hmm. then I'm not sure the university president is obligated to mm -hmm. uh, make the space available to him. Issue would be whom else she has invited in the past. I mean, has right. she? And, you know, I just don't have enough information to judge her uh, decision in this case in, you know, in a broader context. I actually did ask the university, um, what are the rules for renting space? So I wanted to read them and oh, sure. see if that was one of the conditions. And the university spokesman, uh, Jason Cody, was... Um, I think he was uh, really underwater with a lot of media requests, but he told me that there are a lot of different spaces with a lot of different rules, so it was really hard to summarize. So maybe uh, the university needs to revisit their rules in allowing um, yeah. uh, people on campus. Well, I was going to yeah. say it might be a good idea for public institutions in general, right, to maybe be clear about how their their guidelines for the, the make make public guidelines of who they're going to allow and who not. But anyway, Judy, I want to thank I you. Would. I want to. We're going to move on to some phone calls here, but I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Judy Putnam is with okay, the Lansing thank State Journal. Thank you, Judy. Let's okay, go back to the bye phones bye. here. Mark is in Chelsea. Mark, welcome to the program. Thank you for um, having me on. Yeah, what are your thoughts on this subject? Well, my thoughts are that uh, MSU uh, dropped the ball and should have let this fellow speak because of the fact that that's what the First Amendment is about, free speech. And anyone that would argue that point fails to realize that you have to have an awareness and a conscious as a human being to know when 
that type of speech is incorrect in terms of a society. So if you allow someone to talk about it, talk their point of view, but you also should be educated enough to know better, to know that if that person is saying something that you disagree with, while they still have the right, you don't have to listen to it and you don't have to believe it, you don't have to follow it. Right. And if you look at the idea of safety, the safety issue comes up to me as sort of a joke because if you really do the research, if someone did the real research into the number of times that the the left, so to speak, or anti-fies uh, were the ones who were responsible for instituting or initi- I'm sorry, initiating the violence that occurred at the different rallies, uh, North Car- or the North Carolina, I'm not so sure about, or South Carolina, but all the other ones, uh, the Trump rallies and all the other protests that have taken place, it's been the left that has initiated that violence. So I, I don't know who I, the uh, so sure president that. was trying to protect, because that the, the left has been the one that's been initiating the violence well, in I, I, 90% I, of the cases. I, <laughs> I don't know that those are probably accurate statistics. I would agree with you that there have been violent interactions coming from both sides. There's no question about that. But I think to say that 90% of the violence that has happened at any of these rallies has come from these far left groups uh, uh, would probably be right. incredibly I mean, inaccurate. You know, when you have a president who is in a rally of 20,000 people inviting his supporters to take people out on stretchers, or that's the way we would have done things in the past, I think was one of his statements. I think it's hard at that stage to blame uh, leftist groups. That said, I think certain leftist groups have certainly gone too far on universities in not allowing free speech. So, you know, you've had like this epidemic of disinvites on campuses. Condoleezza Rice cannot speak on right. certain mm. campuses. Uh, you know, um, Charles Murray, who is, you know, whatever you may think, or he is a scholar at American Inst- uh, Enterprise Institute, who has, you know, whose book, uh, Losing Ground, uh, was something that influenced Bill Clinton to, uh, you know, engage in welfare reform. But just because he had a chapter on, uh, you know, IQ and race in one of his books, he has become... Uh, you know, radioactive on campuses. He can't even be invited on campus to speak about some of his other scholarship, which is, you know, pretty solid. Uh, and so, you know, you you know, when you have Ayan, Ayan Hirsi Ali, who is, uh, you know, a, a Muslim woman who uh, speaks out on a Muslim reformation, and I have massive disagreements with her, but I think she ought to be allowed to make her, you know, case on campuses. Right. She cannot, uh, you know, uh, enter campuses hmm. without inviting widespread protests that don't allow her to speak. So I think there is this epidemic on the left as well that we need to be mindful of, whether they are responsible for violence or right. not at political rallies. I, you know, I would be well, a little I, I do want to harken back before we go into our break here, and we're going to go back to the phones after the break. But before we go in, I want to harken back to a conversation we had at the end of last week with a reporter who many of he and many of his colleagues had been uh, on the scene um, in Charlottesville or had understood the fallout and reporting back that all of the violence that was initiated came from the white supremacists that yes you had rabble rousers no question on the left showing up with billy clubs and sticks and things that were clearly designed to intimidate or harass but that they said Nearly everybody who showed up on the white supremacist side were there to be aggressive and violent. And so I think to say that 90 percent of 
the violence has started from these Antifa groups uh, is is disingenuous, to say the least. But there's no question. I'm, I think there's a concern, as Sheikha raised, that the intimidation that is caused by the far left in discouraging free speech is problematic down the line as well. If, if, if people who are not even considered extreme can't even come speak for fear that there might be a backlash is concerning. Let's take a break quickly and we'll get back to the phones. 313-577-1019. Again, that's 313-577-1019. You're listening to Detroit Today. I'm Laura Weber Davis. I'm here with Jake Neer. We're sitting in for Stephen Henderson, who will be guest hosting a national program called 1A tonight and tomorrow night. You can hear it on WDET at 8 p.m., so please tune in. Let's go back to the phones as we discuss freedom of speech this hour. Was Michigan State right to deny Richard Spencer's request to hold a white supremacist rally, a white nationalist rally at Michigan State? 313-577-1019 is the number to call. Anita in Warren. Anita, welcome to the program. Hi. Um, my comment was uh, in regards to spending public money um, kind of for protection or um, other whatever security related to having speakers like this come. Um, universities have been getting less funding from the state. We have tuition costs rising. I'm, I would be concerned that um, it's an inappropriate use of money, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. when you have competing uh, priorities. Having people don't ha- have a lack of access to these people's ideas. You can get it on the internet. Right. Universities yeah. have free internet. The biggest so. rally is certainly being held on the internet. There's no question about that. I think that's also been a big boon to some of these groups because they've been able to communicate and essentially rally around each other and organize and organize on the internet. So thank you so much, Anita, for the call. Let's take one more call here. Alyssa in Troy. Alyssa, welcome to the program. Well, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, what are your thoughts? Well, I've been listening for a while, and, you know, I'm a very liberal person, and I think I'm fairly open-minded, but, you know, this is an extreme group or groups, and while it's really nauseating to me to listen to them, I don't have to listen to them. Right. I don't have to go to a rally. I think free speech is a cornerstone of our our country and how it was founded and as much as I dislike what these people stand for and say if this happens if it was that they are not allowed to speak well then what group I mean this could happen the other way or any other way as well anywhere in the country where maybe these kind of groups are a little bit more supported and I wouldn't like if the southern democratic um, groups or whoever um, poverty Center was not allowed to speak. Right. So my feeling is that it should be an open forum, and hopefully there's police presence, so there wouldn't be any violence. Right. As long so, as there I isn't that threat. Alyssa, thank you so much for the phone call. Sheikha. Yeah. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, you know, that point is really well taken, because I think one way to think about this whole issue is just from a pure First Amendment standpoint, right? The other way to think about it is from a strategic standpoint. Uh If we think these groups are hateful, what is the best way to diffuse them? 
And I think the more you try and stop them, you make them a martyr to, you know, free speech rights and you actually embolden them. Right. I mean, I think the better way to deal with them would be, you know, and I always go back to the Skokie example, right, when um, uh, there was a um, neo-Nazi march in Skokie. It was in the 60s, I think. And the ACLU, just as it defended, uh, you know, the rally in Charlottesville, it it defended the right of... uh, the Nazis to march in Skokie. And uh, there were protests to that march, but they were quiet and they let them proceed. And once they were done, they, you know, uh, they mounted their own opposition and their own counter protests. Mm -hmm. So the point was they were not allowed to become martyrs to free speech, which is kind of the uh, tactic of Richard Spencer's and Milo Yiannopoulos's of the world, Mm -hmm. is that they are trying to bait the left into a certain kind of an excessive reaction and then deflect the blame from themselves you know, to them. Being, the, becoming victims. And becoming after, victims. Yeah, yeah, and after Skokie, the ACLU actually lost lots of members who were unhappy that they would do this yeah. um, because they so vehemently disagreed with these people. So it was sort of seen as this sort of, as you said earlier, Sheikha, uh, First Amendment absolutism, right? That, yeah. uh, But I, and I want to get to that uh, point about the ACLU in this case, uh, a group that I know is seen often on the opposite side of the political spectrum as libertarians, but that you also agree with on many issues as well, um, because we're talking about civil liberties here. Uh, They, in this case, like you said, went to court to fight for the protesters in Charlottesville to hold that rally. Uh, And since then, they've said, we are going to be more um, sort of selective about which groups we decide we're going to defend in these cases oh, after this. Right? And oh. they said that we will no longer represent groups who want to carry guns uh, for one in, in one case. This sort of goes back to Richard Spencer's comment carry about guns at the rally. It's carry guns Not at the guns rallies. In general. Right, right. But he said that, you know, Richard's, uh, Richard Primus, sorry, said earlier that uh, constitutional rights aren't necessarily additive. And I want to get your kind of take <laughs> on that, uh, you know, that ne- you can't necessarily exercise uh, your First Amendment and Second Amendment rights at the same time. As, as a libertarian, how, is your, wh- how do you react to what the ACLU is doing in this case and, and that sort of idea of, uh, you know, exercising these, uh, these, these rights at the same time? Yeah, it's a difficult issue. But let me just say, you know, we libertarians agree a lot with the ACLU on civil liberties grounds. But I think ACLU's commitment to the Bill of Rights we have always considered to be somewhat partial. Hmm. So it's not great in defending Second Amendment rights. And, you know, whatever you think about it, they are enshrined in the Constitution. And actually, one of the things that I disagreed with with Richard Primus's comments was that he suggested that the Second Amendment was not uh, and uh, did not pertain to an individual's right to bear arms. And, you know, that's a hugely debatable proposition. Not to get, off, you know, sidetracked by that. I mean, I think I think it's really unfortunate that ACLU made that statement. Hmm. Uh, I think it behooved it. Uh, to get outside of its progressive comforts, comfort zone to defend the First Amendment rights of all kinds of people, including, including people who believe in the Second Amendment. And, uh, you know, it'll cost it some street credibility down the road. So I uh, don't sure. think this is a great idea. And, and we should also say we've invited members of the ACLU, both local chapters here in uh, Michigan and um, uh, nationally. In nationally, the national ACLU as well. They haven't been able to, to make it work to be on the show yet, but we are hoping to have someone on soon to sort of 
give their perspective about all this. Jake, we have a comment on Facebook that you want to Yeah, so uh, Deborah on Facebook uh, says, allowing hate groups to hold nonviolent rallies on public property, state property, community property, shows support of hatred. Hatred breeds violence. Any action in the name of hatred is violent. Hatred is violence. That's sort of an interesting take on this. Shika, what do you have to... Yeah, you know, I I think we really can overdo this whole idea of, well, if it is my taxpayer dollars at Mm -hmm. stake, I'm not going... uh, You know, I I want safety. I don't, uh, you know, I don't want my public dollars to be uh, used uh, to go to protect uh, white supremacists. I mean, look... uh, if the if we draw the line on based on uh, you know public spending, right now you you know you have progressive groups who want to keep out hate groups. Tomorrow you will have you know right wing groups like Richard Spencer, uh, you know who will use the same argument to go against uh, left wing groups. So I think at you know public dollars are involved, I think it behooves us to see what is the mission of the institution that these public dollars are promoting. Mm-hmm. Universities are meant to, provo- uh, to promote dialogue and a wide airing of ideas. I don't think you can make this public safety argument unless there is real public safety involved. Over right. Here. Yeah. One last social media comment here. MHL on Twitter says, please come to my neighborhood. You'll be met with peaceful resistance and exposed as racist. Uh, Ann Arbor and Ypsilanti is waiting. Laura, your community there. <laughs> That's, uh, we are all about the uh, peaceful protest in Ann Arbor <laughs> by any means necessary. We have one minute left here. I want to take one more call. Tim is in the Bagley community here in Detroit. Tim, welcome to the program. Oh, good morning. Thank you for taking me. I'm yeah, going to speak just, quickly because I know it's yes, time please. constraints. Number one, uh, I think the Facebook caller really hit the nail on the head. If these are public parks and public recreation areas, then I think it's an economic deal. If we do not allow or do not uh, permit these chancellors, governors, mayors to hold or to allow these um, settings on public uh, facilities of which we pay tax dollars to, then they might have a second thought, thought about or inviting them. Uh, secondly, why don't we try the psychological approach? Let them have their little itty-bitty Boy Scout, well, that's a disgrace, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that, their little <laughs> ignoramus uh, meetings and get the word out months and days before and tell the population, don't go. Let them go out there and chant to themselves so they and the crickets are the only ones with audience. Without audience, they do not exist. Yeah, right. you know, you. and uh, just to chime in on that, Boston, which held protests yesterday, uh, the counter demonstrators to the white supremacists over- overwhelm them, yeah. and I think that's the right way to do it. Let them have their protests, but then just overwhelm, you know, overwhelm them yeah. with peace and love. <laughs> Shika Dalmia from Reason Foundation and Reason Magazine. Thank you so much. Stephen Henderson, your host of Detroit Today, is hosting 1A, a national program tonight at 8 p.m. Please tune in. We're excited to hear him and wish him luck. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station. Thanks for listening.